Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. everyone, my name is Chelsea and I'm one of the curators here at ACME. Um, so first and foremost, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome everyone to our ACME Conversations Interpreting Alice, a dissection of the myriad of meanings found in the text this evening. We're really so excited and thrilled that we can have this conversation, so thank you for joining us, everyone. Um, I'm not sure how many people have gone downstairs as yet um, to our Wonderland exhibition, but within it we explore the many different moving image representations of Alice on screen. Since first gracing the silver screen in 1903, Alice has delighted audiences with more than 40 art house and blockbuster films, not to mention her influences across mediums, cultures, and of course, within the world of special effects. Since the earliest interpretations, makers have constantly pushed the boundaries of craft in grappling with the many illusions and ideas that Lewis Carroll has embedded within the text. The wide variety of films, television shows, music videos and games are really testament to the you know, wide variety and innumerable theories of Alice within the world of Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland. So without further ado, um, I would like to introduce Mel Campbell tonight, who is going to be sort of chairing our talk. So Mel is a freelance journalist and critic who co-hosts the fortnightly literature and culture podcast, The Rereaders. Mel is a columnist and columnist on writing at The Overland magazine, a lecturer in editing and publishing at La Trobe University, and a writer on film, TV, and media at Junkie. The Big Issue, Crikey, Metro, The Guardian, and many, many more. <laughs> many, many more. Her first book was the nonfiction investigation Out of Shape, debunking myths around fashion and fit, and she's the co-author of the romantic comedy novel The Hot Guy. So before we start, a few housekeeping notes. Um, there'll be a Q&A at the end of the session. Please, please stick around. And it is being recorded, so I ask if you could please wait for the mic till you ask your question so that everybody on the record but also on our live stream can hear the event and hear your questions. Um, and also, this room is fantastic. We love it, but it's a little bit technical. If you want to exit at any point, please don't go through the door that you've just entered. If you come around to this door over here, our fantastic VSO Baja will help you out. And without further ado, I'm going to hand it over. Thank you again for coming. We very much appreciate it and enjoy. Thank you. Can I get a show of hands? Who has actually had a chance to check out Acme's Wonderland exhibition? Oh, it's kind of a bit half and half here. I'm pleased that my fellow panellists also put their hands up. Um, 
what strikes me about Acme's exhibition is that it's, it's focused on the, the magic of Wonderland as a, as a space where the impossible can be made possible and special effects do the same thing. They create a sense of possibility. Um, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about technology, but we're also going to be talking about that other wonderful mechanism for making the impossible possible, the human mind. Um, whoa, I know, right? Um, so before we get started, I wanted to give you just a little bit of a background on some of the the issues that have come up over time when we're talking about Alice in Wonderland before I introduce our, our panellists who are each going to give a presentation based on their own areas of expertise and we'll have a discussion among us after each of those presentations. Keep your questions in mind because I'd like you to hold those questions until the end of the presentation rather than having them after each individual presentation. Um, so just keep them in your wonderful mechanism. But uh, when we're thinking about Alice in Wonderland, we're often thinking about the films and the other media that have come after it. Have you also noticed my special Alice in Wonderland themed earrings? It's, it's such an iconic sense of uh, imagery that partly has to do with um, Tenniel's illustrations of some of the early editions of the book, particularly the ones in which Alice is wearing a blue dress, because she wasn't always wearing a blue dress. In some of them, she's wearing a yellow dress, a buttercup or butter yellow dress, which is um, fascinating as well. Um, so we have to cast our eye back in time to a boating trip that happened um, along the Thames in 1862 on July 4th. And this was where um, Lewis, uh, sorry, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, was having a boating trip with um, some of his friends and with the sisters of the Liddell family with whom he had become friendly. Um, Alice Liddell, obviously, is the namesake of this book, but she had several other siblings as well. To entertain the girls, um, he made up this story and then he went away and workshopped it and in 1865 it was published as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And then we had the other um, sequel volume, which was um, Alice's Through the Looking Glass, um, Further Adventures Through Wonderland. Um, now, Dodgson was a very interesting character, and maybe we can tease out some of the things that made him interesting. But it's important to, to note that some of the things in the book have to do with the, the Cambridge, which is where all this was happening. So um, he, oh sorry, Oxford. Um, Dodgson attended Christ College at Oxford and later on became a, a teacher of mathematics there. And he became mates with, um, with Alice's parents um, and with other people in the, in the, um, in the university. So um, the King of Hearts is basically uh, an, an, an analogy, some people say, for Henry Liddell, Alice's dad, and her mum is the Queen of Hearts. So when you think about the unflattering portrayals of the King and Queen of Hearts, it might give you an idea as to Lewis Carroll's opinion of Alice's parents. And it's also perhaps worthy, uh, worthwhile to mention here that there was a um, a feud between him and the, the Liddells that led them to break off their friendship in uh, 1863 later on. Some say that it's because um, Lewis Carroll, who never married, um, might have 
ask for Alice's hand in marriage and her parents refuse. But again, there are mysterious clues in his diaries and in other writings that um, were made around the time, but this is something that is shrouded in mystery. Um, the white rabbit, who appears as this fretful figure who's late for a very important date, we know in uh, some of the later adaptations, um, might also be a representation of Alice Liddell's doctor, Dr. Ackland, who was the Regius Professor of Medicine at um, Christchurch College. And the rabbit hole in, um, in the story might symbolise the actual stairs in the back of the main hall at Christchurch. Um, when we think about some of the things that Alice does, she goes to tea parties, she plays croquet, these are some of the things that the real child Alice would have enjoyed. And some of the characters, if you'll remember that there's a duck, a dodo, Laurie and Eaglet, who are sort of characters who go in the pool of tears and are upset. This might be, some say, a reference to a real-life boating expedition that ended in a similar watery, wet disaster, um, with parts including um, Dodgson himself and the Reverend Robinson Duckworth, who was a, a mate of his. So they are the duck and dodo of this story. And then Alice's sisters, Lorena and Edith, feature as Laurie and the eaglet in that story. And so there's a description of them emerging dripping wet, cross and comfortable. That is apparently what actually happened on this trip. So we can see that this is actually something that's about Cambridge itself and as a space where the, the teller of the story and the listeners of the original story were all familiar with. And, and it's kind of almost about in-jokes, really. But some have also said that we can't consider this story without considering its background in Victoria, in Victorian England, that is. And so are these uh, characters that Alice encounters allegories for different um, political forces, whether they're actually individuals or whether they are um, different uh, political actors at that time. So, for instance, um, the Queen might represent Queen Victoria, who was very short, was famous for her short temper as well, and she was um, very fond of ordering people about. Um, but the shambolic legal system of Wonderland, in which everything is a nonsense, could also be a critique of the legal system and the bureaucracy that reigned in England at the time. Um, if you're familiar with the ideas of the walrus and the carpenter and the story they tell about the oysters, that they lure out onto a little walk, um, with the intention, they say, of, of understanding um, other things, cabbages and kings, um, only to basically eat them. So some say that the walrus and the carpenter represent the UK and the US at this period in time, um, and both have a vested interest in gobbling up other um, countries and other resources for themselves. Um, some also say that the queen and her garden with white roses that have to hastily be camouflaged as red roses is a reference to the Wars of the Roses in um, England's history, the Houses of York and Lancaster, which were represented by a white rose and a red rose, and of course united by the House of Tudor. Um, which was a white and a red rose. So again, we can see that who knows ultimately what is in someone's mind when they invent a book. They're telling a fun story, but they're also telling an allegory sometimes. And so when we ourselves, you know, hundreds of years later, are looking at, our, um, at Alice in Wonderland, are we 
talking about our own time now, or are we talking about the time when the story was made? So it's very easy for us to impose our own ideas and our own theories on this book that might not have been at all what the author intends. But of course, um, when we come to postmodernist literary critique, it doesn't have to do with what the author intended. It might also be to do with um, the society that we live in, because we, the readers, are interpreting things based on what we believe and, and what the forces are in our own societies. So some of the other things that Alice has in, in throughout time been associated with um, might be with themes of adulthood and childhood. I don't want to get too psychoanalytical and be talking about the uh, rabbit hole that she goes down as being a a kind of um, a sexual symbol. I'm not going to talk about that. But think about how Alice grows bigger and she grows smaller and about how adulthood is sometimes about feeling small in situations where you used to feel big or about when you're a child, you feel small um, among all the other big people and you feel powerless. Um, Think about how Lewis Carroll never married and often felt like he was most at home with other children. Maybe he is like Alice when she's large, trying to squeeze into a place where he wants to belong but no longer feels that he does. Um, but also, think about the way that Alice is constantly being confronted with a nonsense. Like, everything that she understands or thinks is, is true is turned on its head um, and everyone she encounters is not in a position to help her. It's kind of up to Alice to help herself to figure out what's right, which you can argue is what it is to grow up, what it means to be an adult in the world. And her sense of curiosity, her sense that things are curiouser and curiouser is kind of part of, of a child's way of looking at the world. But she's often, often told by everyone around her that her curiosity is going to get her into trouble. And she's really told off by all, all the authority figures that she encounters within Wonderland. Um, everything that she, she comes across is, is told that it's wrong. So perhaps it's about feeling uncomfortable in your body, but it's also about feeling that who you are and how you relate to everyone else is constantly changing and is never making sense. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about more of the um, actual psychology of that a little bit later. Um, so I've talked about in-jokes, I've talked about political allegory, and I've also talked about ideas of childhood. But now it is time to get into some of the more specialist ideas for which we must introduce our opening speaker, who is Professor Nick Haslam. Uh, now, Nick is a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne, and he is a past head of the department, the School of Psychological Sciences at that university. Now, Nick trained in the United States and also worked in the United States until 2002. He trained at the University of Pennsylvania, um, received his PhD in clinical and social psychology there, and taught at the New School for Social Research in New York for several years. But now he's back. He's back in Australia. And he's no longer working in the clinical sphere. He's strictly a research professor. His research interests include personality, social perception, and psychiatric classification. So I'm very curiouser and curiouser to see what he makes of Alice in Wonderland. Now, in, um, in addition to publishing extensively within the psychological literature. You might have come across some of Nick's uh, writings at The Conversation, and I encourage you to check those out if you ever are able to find them. He's also written for The Monthly, The Guardian, The Washington Post, 
the Australian, and he has appeared in two Best Australian Science Writing anthologies, but most interestingly for me, he's recently published something in Time magazine that's about reading on the toilet. So Nick talks about the big topics, and I'm really, I'm really, really keen to hear what he's going to have to say about Alice. Please make Nick welcome. Well, thank you for that very, uh, very generous uh, um, intro, Mel. And I mean, Alice is a big um, question as well. So I think you might think this is just some sort of curiosity, but I think it has some really interesting psychological dimensions. And I was asked to speak about the psychology and maybe neuroscience of Alice. And I thought I'd just start by saying um, something which I didn't know until about a week ago. There's actually a syndrome named after this book um, called uh, Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. And I should put my specs back on. Uh, so I can actually read what's here. But here's a few quotes from people uh, afflicted by this rather rare syndrome. It's only about 200 people have actually had their cases written up on this, but uh, I'll read this for those of you who are feeling a bit lazy. Uh, Often preceding and during the migraine attack, I've had a very peculiar feeling of being very close to the ground as I walk along. It's as though I was short and wide, like Queen Victoria, as the reflection in one of those broadening mirrors one sees in carnivals. Sometimes I feel myself to be six inches tall and sometimes 12 feet. She was occasionally conscious of an illusory feeling that her feet were a yard long or that she was going up or downhill when actually walking over flat ground. I get tired from pulling my head down from the ceiling. My head feels like a balloon. Uh, These are actual quotes from actual patients. Uh, While seated, the patient felt her four limbs growing longer in a bilateral and symmetrical way and her trunk not an elephant, uh, enlarging to make her more straight and like draped with a long train. While standing, she perceived the floor as distant and soft and felt she had a very light walk, full of ease or like on stilts. And if you read these sorts of experiences, and there are lots of other ones where people thought that their head had shrunk to the size of an orange, uh, other amusing kinds of experiences, although they would be quite terrifying if you had them yourself, you'll see the connection to the sort of experiences that Alice goes through uh, in this wonderful book. Uh, And um, this syndrome was identified in the 1950s by a psychiatrist. And he said that there were a few cardinal features of the the syndrome. So the major ones are distortions of what's called the body schema, this sort of idea or the image that we have in our minds and our brains about what the body looks like and how, if it gets distorted, we see things differently from how they objectively are. But it's not the only thing. So in addition, there's a kind of uh, confusion that um, the person experiences where they feel a deep sense of unreality of the world and also an unreality of themselves, Um, derealization, depersonalization. Often time accelerates or slows down. So it's not only space that's distorted, it's also also time. Um, But really vision in general undergoes a kind of alteration there. So objects are seen as being larger or smaller than they are in size, sometimes Colour uh, is seen either in a very diluted kind of way or completely bleached out into monochrome uh, or very vivid. Um, there's even symptoms where people see nothing but green or nothing but purple or nothing but yellow. Um, there are things where people see wavy lines, illusory movement, sometimes an exaggerated sense of the detail of objects or seeing objects as further away. And you get this uh, remarkable, um, very discombobulating kind of experience that comes along in this uh, syndrome. 
And of course, uh, you get some wonderful long names, uh, which um, psychiatrists and neurologists, and to a lesser extent, psychologists do all the time. Uh, so um, macrosomatognosia, um, it means feeling that your body is bigger than it really is. And so total body macrosomatognosia, um, say that 10 times fast, mm. is sort of what, you know, here's an example from Alice. Uh, she's uh, she's uh, eaten the cake or drunk the drink, I forget which made her bigger, uh, and she's uh, crammed into the, into the, the, the room. Uh, and that's an experience which is not at all uncommon among people who have this syndrome. Or you get the reverse, the total body microsomatognosia, feeling that your uh, body is, is smaller than it really is, like in some of the quotes we, we saw. Uh, or you get those partial ones, again, the word's so long it doesn't even fit on um, uh, a slide, <laughs> where um, you'll see that, uh, and the famous case here, again, is where Alice um, eats something or other. This may have been the mushroom, I think, that did this, where her neck becomes so long that a pigeon in the canopy thinks it's a serpent uh, and wants to fly away. And all of these things actually are experienced in this, in this syndrome. And it's caused by all sorts of things as well. So you might think that one syndrome has one particular cause, but actually it's most commonly experienced in the context of migraine headaches, um, sometimes in epilepsy, sometimes in the context of a viral infection or encephalitis. Um, brain lesions can cause it. Um, defects in the visual system directly can cause it, or even in the, um, the middle ear, which is responsible for things like balance. Uh, sometimes you'll see it in the context of uh, mental illness, like depression or schizophrenia, and sometimes it comes on episodically um, with people who are um, uh, under the influence of LSD or cannabis or um, cough syrup, uh, if you want a cheap high. Uh, and, you know, you actually see this in real life. So, uh, believe it or not, there was a, a, a contest a while ago for um, um, migraine art, uh, they, they solicited uh, images from drawings from people who wanted to describe their experience of, of having migraines. And you see uh, or the, 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 the mental state that precedes the headache itself. And you, you here are a couple of the, um, the examples of this of partial macrosomatognosia. Uh, often the head is enlarged like this. This is the, the picture on the left uh, relative to the body. So you see something a little bit like Alice. Uh, with the elongated neck. Um, the case on the right is someone who felt that her arms had got unnaturally long in the context of a, um, um, a, a migraine attack that was coming along. So these things are actually experienced. The interesting thing that seems to be going on in the brain is that there's some sort of alteration in the brain's map of, um, of, uh, of the body. Um, so on, on your um, uh, somatosensory cortex, it's called, if you look at the left image, um, there's a representation according to where in the brain the different parts of the body's sensation are encoded, and parts of the body where tactile sensation is sort of more important or where the, where the map, if you like, is in finer detail, have more space in the brain. So if you look at this map, the face takes up a lot of space, the hand quite a bit, the tongue quite a bit, but the trunk, legs, feet, not so much. You get a distorted idea of what the, the body looks like. And what seems to be going on in this um, Alice in Wonderland syndrome is somehow this kind of map is not translating in the normal way into the objective um, dimensions of the body. And it's actually even more different in the, if you look at the, uh, the next um, fold of the brain along, which is responsible for the image of um, movement, where the hand and the face are huge. 
and you can actually picture it up like this. These are actual, this is, these, these uh, um, strange little creatures are representations of what the body would look like if they were proportional to how <laughs> the, the brain represents the different parts of them. And you'll see that oversized head, oversized hands, uh, and this is again maybe what's going on somehow in, uh, in this syndrome, that the, there's a distortion in the relative size of these parts of the body. So why would I say all this? Well, one theory about what um, Dodgson was uh, expressing in the sort of fantastical aspects of Alice was his own personal experience of, of migraines. And there's good evidence that he actually had experienced uh, migraines. He called them you know, bilious headaches, bilious because he actually threw up uh, frequently before them, and that he experienced visual auras, um, which is not just the sort of angelic thing over the heads of my colleagues here, uh, but the sort of unusual sensory experiences preceding the headache. Um, and he, he, he saw some of these sorts of things that you might see in Alice in Wonderland symptoms. Uh, uh, moving fortifications must be some sort of jagged castle-like thing moving across his eyes. Uh, and it also appears that he had some sort of um, uh, defect in his, in his, in his visual system uh, which might be associated with that. How we know this is because um, I mean, this, this migraine theory of Alice um, it was controversial because there were suggestions that he hadn't actually shown the symptom until after he'd written the great books. But uh, it turns out that actually prior to writing Alice, um, he, he, he had some... Um, he consulted an oculist, a famous, a famous one, who found evidence that there was some sort of missing part of his visual field. Revealed in this um, image he, he, he drew in, a, in a, a little chronicle he wrote called Mishmash, uh, where you'll see the sort of uh, the side of the face of this image and also the shoulder and the hand is simply missing. Now it could be that he sort of had to dash off and uh, watch his favourite TV show. Uh, more likely, um, he simply didn't see it. You often see people who have this sort of um, uh, absence in their visual field simply not completing uh, drawings like this. So there was some sort of unusual aspect of his visual system and that could have um, manifested itself in um, unusual migraine type experiences and so he maybe knew whereof he spoke when he wrote um, the, um, the, the unusual distorted sensory experiences that Alice goes through in um, uh, Alice. There are other theories about so why uh, elements of this book, and I guess Mel alluded to some of this of course, uh, there uh, are, have been suggestions that um, there was something a little bit um, uh, odd about Hodgson's, uh, Dodgson's sorry, um, sexuality. Uh, he, he didn't like adults very much, it's true. He had a terrible stammer, so he was very socially awkward, but he also didn't like little boys. Uh, he much preferred the company of little girls. That doesn't mean it was necessarily anything but innocent. He simply liked their company, but of course there have been speculations, and um, although we don't know for sure, he may well have asked um, um, uh, Alice's parents uh, for um, to, to wed Alice, or at least he, the, the closeness of their relationship may have troubled them, but certainly they banned him from seeing her at some point. And if you want to you know, get into the psychoanalysis of it, and that's not my preferred way of thinking about it, but for historical reasons, a lot of writers have written about how there seemed to be a kind of um, sexual dimension to, to Alice, again, all of the holes and tunnels, but also keys and locks. And so there's a quote from a famous psychoanalyst from back in the 40s or 50s about what the lock and key means. You remember at the very start of the picture, uh, the book, not the picture. Uh, start of the book, um, there's this issue of not being able to open the right, um, the right door with the right key, and so on. So you can fill in the, the blanks there. 
Uh, another theory has to do with the idea that this is actually a very savage book. So um, Paul Schilder was a, uh, an Austrian psychoanalyst in the 1930s who wrote the first sort of major psychoanalytic piece about, um, about Alice in Wonderland. And his area of expertise was how um, people form an image of their body, how we have to construct an image of our body. It's, we have to construct that map in the first place. And often people who have psychotic disorders um, have a sort of disintegrated sense of what their body's like. It doesn't all come together. Um, and what uh, Schilder said was going on in Alice in Wonderland was really uh, there's a huge amount of cruelty, there's a huge amount of destructiveness and disintegration of, of bodies or threatened disintegration of bodies. Um, you know, of course, Alice's body um, um, stretches in all sorts of elastic ways. There's lots of threats of being decapitated. Uh, all along the way, there's lots of animals being savagely devoured by other animals. There's a, a, a cat that sort of um, um, loses most of its, uh, its substance. Uh, there's a course in, in um, Through the Looking Glass, um, Humpty Dumpty comes to a pretty grisly end. Uh, and he would basically, he, he felt this was a bad book for children. Children thought there was a, too much aggression in this book. Um, and, and of course, we can, we, can, we can laugh at that these days. But the idea was essentially he was saying um, children do come to sort of master this sort of savagery um, by playing with it in the form of the book and come to get a sense of the integrity of the body, if you like, through having it challenged in these sort of spectacular, weird, fantastical ways. And the final idea, which I think, again, Mel alluded to, you know, some of the later analysts um, thought that the book was more about the mastery of self, developing a sense of identity. So often Alice is asked in the book, you know, who are you? Different creatures ask, you who, ask her, who are you? And she has a lot of trouble answering. Uh, and even at one point thinks she must have turned into her friend Mabel, who I think is a bit thick and can't do multiplication tables or remember poems or things like that. There's a whole lot of identity confusion um, early in the book. But I think as the book moves through, at least according to um, two analysts, both called Phyllis, uh, they, there's a sort of sense of overcoming obstacles, developing a sense of self, um, mastering uh, uncertainties, uh, and out of this sort of chaos, which is probably what, at some level, children experience early in life, this sort of befuddling reality of uh, the adult world, gradually they come to a sense of understanding. So it's sort of a metaphor, if you like, of growing up. Um, at least that's one reading. Wow, thank you, Nick. <laughs> So I'm curious about you, I'm I keep using that word, mm. what do you think is plausible? Uh, like yourself, when you read Alice in Wonderland, what do you see as a, a diagnostician perhaps or someone with that a psychological background? Uh, before I say that, I've missed a slide, you've reminded me. Oh, did me. you? So um, while we're diagnosing, <laughs> sorry, that was, we didn't coordinate on that. Uh, I will get onto that, I promise, but I prepared a slide, so I must talk to it. While, while <laughs> there's been a lot of sort of flippant um, um, diagnosis, I should say, of some of the other characters, and so people have written about the mock turtle as a chronic depressive, and people have written about the dormouse as having um, 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 chronic somnolence due to um, sleep apnea, uh, <laughs> and there's even been a, a case made that uh, by putting him in the, um, the teapot. He was somehow opening his pharynx to allow him to breathe more easily. Uh, the one last thing, and I'm, I'm probably using more than my allotted time, uh, the Mad Hatter, apparently Hatters often were mad uh, in those days because you used uh, mercury to stiffen the felt 
uh, in hats. And in order to steam the hats onto the head mold, there'd be a lot of vaporized mercury in the air, which is not very good for one's brain, which might turn you a little bit strange. As for my own diagnosis, look, I think it's really, I, I don't think it really helps anyone much to diagnose um, uh, uh, any of the, either the characters, uh, who are after all fictional, uh, or even uh, Dodgson. I think really it's just a book that's just incredibly amusing, and, and I guess what turns me on about it is not so much the psychology of it, uh, as just the spirit of play, the imaginativeness, and all of the clever wordplay especially. I think it's for people who like words, who like reading, who um, feel for Dodgson, because I think the reason it was claimed by his Oculus that he had the bad eyes was that he read too much. Yeah. Um, for people who have some sympathy with that, um, that's what I love. I love just the play with words and the play with ideas and the idea that you know this, this is something that children lap up. Well, it's interesting that you should talk about the play with words because our next speaker is going to be talking about the play with numbers mm -hmm. and the play with uh, mathematical and, and scientific or physics specifically um, principles. Um, it's Stephanie Pradler who has a most interesting uh, career. Stephanie is privileged to be the communications manager at the Australia and New Zealand Cooperative Research Centre for Spatial Information. So pretty much any project that is being worked on by a combo of academic, private and government uh, investment and brain power, Stephanie sort of has a hand in. If it has something to do with spatial issues were located in space. So she works on everything from GPS work to facial mapping that has um, medical or health sciences implications to sort of epidemiological um, mapping that allows um, people with health conditions to figure out um, if they're working in a danger zone. Um, but she can probably talk much more about it, the specifics of what she does. But her background is interesting too because Stephanie straddles the arts and the sciences. Um, her arts degree involved philosophy and journalism and her science degree involved mathematics and physics. So really, Steph, you are ideally placed to talk about <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. Um, but as a science communicator, I'm really super excited to see what kind of um, normal, easily understandable ideas you can pick out of some very complex ideas in the book. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Mel. I hope I do everyone a good thing. I've got notes because I like to be prepared. So um, I'm going to talk to you all about the mathematics in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Lewis Carroll was more than the nom de plume of the Oxford mathematician, the Reverend Charles Lewis Dodgson. Carroll was his alter ego, an independent character that, used, that he used to express ideas which did not fit well with a man known to be an intellectual conservative. An intellectual conservative well connected with the academic, artistic and religious worlds of the time. Like Barry Humphreys and Dame Edna Everidge, the creation has become more widely known than the creator because of their eccentric and often nonsensical view of the world. Dodgson publicly denied that he was Carol, rather as Humphreys and Everidge sometimes snipe about each other on television chat shows. But while Dodgson was certainly an able mathematician, it was the work of Carroll that endures. Dodgson loved puzzles and puns, and the creation of his identity of Lewis Carroll is no exception. He submitted a number of options to his publishers, but the one that was used comes from the Latin translation of his two first names, Charles Lutwich, Cara, Car, sorry, 
Carolus Ludovicius, and then he reversed the words and anglicised them to the familiar pen name that we all know, Lewis Carroll. In his work as a lecturer in mathematics at Christchurch College, Oxford, between the years 1885 and 1881, Dodgson found himself engaged in a discipline that was undergoing rapid change. Um, now, some of you might not know, but when you study mathematics at Oxford, you actually do so in a Bachelor of Arts, not a Bachelor of Science. Mathematics had developed mainly to describe the physical world through the union of arithmetic, geometry and algebra. But during the 1800s, it began to embrace abstraction in pursuit of deeper foundations. What we know about Dodgson is his devotion to the classical geometrical principles of Euclid's writings in the elements. From a small number of fundamental principles, we can all derive the Euclidean geometry that we use, knowingly or not, to describe the shapes and locations of real objects using coordinates and a set of axes. These are mathematical expressions of our everyday notions of lengths and directions, the directions left, right, up and down, forwards and backwards. Now, any challenge to the methods of Euclid was absurd to Dodgson. So what may have begun as a harmless, entertaining story told to children by the banks of the Isis in Oxford became in its printed form of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland a subversive commentary on what Dodgson saw as the imprecision of these new directions in mathematics. The very best of Carroll's writings are sly, witty attacks on new trends that challenged the certainties of his classically trained mind. When he wrote about these certainties, such as religious faith, mathematical principles, or social problems, Dodgson could be best described as worthy, but rather dull. Dodgson was a shy man, and we've all discussed this tonight, but when he wrote his carol, he was at his best when he fashioned ridicule within riddles. Superficially, Alice is an amusing nonsense story, and its style may be regarded as a precursor to 20th century English absurdist humour of the goons, Monty Python and Douglas Adams. At its heart, however, it is intended to be a demonstration loosely employing the mathematical technique of reductio ad absurdum, of what Dodgson regarded as the intellectual, as the shaky, sorry, intellectual foundations of this new mathematics. The absurd scenes in Alice are intended to tell us just how absurd these new ideas really are. They are most readily understood by the fortunate elite who had absorbed the classical geometry of Euclid and enjoyed the rigorous education afforded by an English private school or the personal tuition offered by an Oxford college. <laughs> Alice is a whimsy designed for a sophisticated mathematical audience who are already in on the joke. In Alice, Carroll directed his scorn at a few emerging fields of mathematics, but as I only have a short time tonight, and I probably will go over as well, um, I'm only going to describe two. Uh, the symbolic algebra that had been established by Augustus de Morgan and the algebra of quaternions created by William Rowan Hamilton. The first chapter I will take you back to is advice from a caterpillar. Most people think that this scene is about drugs and that's reasonable. I mean, Alice comes across a caterpillar, smoking a hooker, sitting atop a magic mushroom. 
However, our first clue that this um, scene is about Dodgson's dismay at the absurdity of symbolic algebra is the pipe itself. The word hooker is of Arabic origin, as is the word algebra. <laughs> the Western architect of symbolic algebra was British mathematician Augustus de Morgan. He laid out the first consistent rules of symbolic algebra in his 1849 manuscript Trigonometry and Double Algebra, citing the Arabic work, and I asked a couple of the guys at my work to help me with the pronunciation, so hopefully I get it right, Hizab al-Dra wa al-Mubala, or Restoration and Reduction, which is exactly what happens in this chapter. Alice arrives at the caterpillar, looking to restore her size. She is but three inches tall. And when she eats the mushroom, reduction is what she got. Her chin hits her shoe. Symbolic algebra is what we use today. It is the language for communication between mathematical objects. These objects do not have to be related in the slightest to physical quantities, and that's what changed in the 1800s. De Morgan himself thought that these results were unintelligible and absurd, but he explained, just as our heroines encounter unfolds, that even though algebra had been reduced to a seemingly absurd but logical set of operations, eventually some sort of meaning would be restored. Symbolic algebra, or if you wiki it tonight, look up abstract or computer algebra, is the language that runs our computers, our economies, and our digital worlds. So, not necessarily a scene about drugs, but one that highlights the departure from universal arithmetic, where algebraic symbols stood for specific numbers fixed in physical quantities. After a short stop at the Duchess's house and a quick sniff of the continuity principle, Alice takes the path to the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. For those unaware, this chapter was not in the book that uh, Dodgson presented to Alice Little. It only appeared in the printed text. The significance of this chapter surrounds the move from Euclidean to non-Euclidean geometry, and the idea that scholars had now begun to use seemingly nonsensical concepts such as imaginary numbers, which is the square root of a negative number, which of course can't represent a physical quantity like a fraction or a whole number, um, and they've been using them a lot. Um, can everyone understand why the square root of a negative number is absurd? Yeah? Because yeah? if, um, well, well, when you square all numbers, even the negative ones are positive. It's two, two numbers multiplied together, even when they're negative, are positive. Cool. So, <laughs> um, in 1843, William Hamilton introduced a fourth dimension and a new system to mathematics. This system, called Catonians, was the first significant number system that did not obey the laws of ordinary arithmetic. Catonians are also a fundamental basis for modern theories of space-time. More on time later. Let's get back to the arithmetic. The easiest way to grasp the change to the normal laws of arithmetic is with what we call we being people like me, um, <laughs> non-commutative multiplication. Put simply, A times B did not necessarily equal B times A anymore. 
absurd, right? Dodgson draws attention to this change at the tea party through language and in verses, when Alice is told to say what she means by the March Hare. I do, she says. At least, at least, I mean what I say. That's the same thing, you know. To which the Hutter responds, not the same thing a bit. Why, you might as well say, I see what I eat is the same as I eat what I see. The March Hare adds, you might as well say, I like what I get is the same as I get what I like. And we mustn't forget our sleepy dormouse who chimes in, and this is my favourite, hence why it's on the slide. You might as well say, I breathe when I sleep is the same as I sleep when I breathe. So you see, Carol uses common language and the rules of language to highlight this new mathematics where non-commutative multiplication holds. Now, what of time, this extra term? Hamilton, like most Victorians, thought it had to mean something. In the preface to his lectures on Catonians of 1853, Hamilton added a footnote. It seems and still seems to me natural to connect this extra spatial unit with the conception of time. So what happened when Hamilton added this fourth dimension and this extra spatial unit? It allowed vectors. Does everyone know what a vector is? It's a line that has length and direction, so it goes somewhere. So this fourth dimension allowed vectors to rotate or move in three-dimensional space. Prior to Cotonians, this couldn't happen. But explaining the mathematics of this without using mathematics and in under 10 minutes would be absolutely impossible, and I bet Alice would even agree. <laughs> but I'd like you all to close your eyes and go to the Mad Hatter's tea party. Picture Carol's three characters sitting around a table. Remember, time is missing. Hatter quarrelled with time, and time no longer comes for tea. Now remember, I told you that Cortonians are defined by four numbers. So, when time goes off in a half, the Hatter, the March Hare, and the Dormouse are stuck at six o'clock at their two-dimensional table, going round and round, shifting places. They cannot move out of two-dimensional space without their fourth-dimensional friend, time. Hopefully, now you're in on the joke too. <laughs> and you can all open your eyes. <laughs> um, if you head along to the exhibition downstairs, you'll see glimpses of this in the audio-visual Tea Party production. So, Dodgson made many contributions to mathematics. Some were before their time. He published texts on symbolic logic, different to symbolic algebra. He devised the basis for the proportional voting system 100 years before it came into use. And he published very important work on logic trees, graph theory, determinants, and computer algorithms. All of these are crucial nowadays to our computer science. Dodgson was, by all accounts, a good mathematician, but he wasn't a great one. The Alice books were initially admired more for their illustrations than their literary merit, and in the 19th century did not appear in lists of popular children's books. They were full of clues and riddles and contained private messages hidden in puzzles. They were simply ahead of their time too. In the 20th century, they spawned imitators, musical, theatrical, and cinematic adaptions. 
The work of Melanie Bailey in her Oxford PhD thesis on Victorian literature has probably had more influence than any other in reuniting Carroll's books with their mathematical origins in Dodgson's tutorials on algebra and geometry at Christchurch College. If they were alive today, we can imagine, with the marvels of technology, Dodgson and Carroll playfully sniping at one another, as do Humphreys and Everidge, creator and creation, on television chat shows, each dismissing the significance of the other. In reality, together, they form the whole. If we could get them together, they would no doubt agree that if one may think of six impossible things before breakfast, then surely the rules that make up the mathematics of our world are able to be impossible, complex, imaginary, abstract, and even absurd. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That was amazing. One thing that struck me when I was listening to your talk was just how much of what we take for granted was the subject of fierce debate in the past and now the scientific method is about constantly proving other methods to be not wrong but um, incomplete and incorrect and needing to constantly vectorize to create a, a direction for um, knowledge. It's kind of struck me that, do you think that Lewis was, oh, sorry, Lewis Carroll was on, if you like, the losing side of thought about mathematics? Was he making fun of things that were going past his views? I don't think he was making fun of things that were going past his views. I think he was in a time where there was rapid change going on. He was at his heart a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that some of the the changes in the mathematics, Catonians, I mean, it's very difficult mathematics and he would have struggled to have the tools to teach his undergraduate students what, what these changes were. Um, also, if we think back to the Victorian era, um, this whole idea of, of representing things like limits and sets that actually didn't exist in our real world were completely absurd to the time. And so. that made me also think about the way that mathematics used to be an arts discipline. Well, it still is at Oxford. Is it? It still is, Why yes. is that? Do you know? Um, no, there is somebody in the audience who might be able to tell us why that is, because he also did mathematics at Oxford. Oh, really? But Hands maybe... up. Put your hand up. Identify yourself. <laughs> Up the back there. We'll expect a question from you in question time. <laughs> but I was also interested about the way, Steph, that you were saying, no, this wasn't about drugs, especially when we're talking about the, um, the caterpillar. Oh, so not necessarily about drugs. Well, we, our next speaker is going to be... <laughs> All right, see you. Oh, nice segue, sorry. Our, our next speaker is, is going to be looking at some of the uh, more imaginative psychedelic imagery of um, Alice in Wonderland which over the years has been claimed as uh, a kind of psychedelic text. Um, I obviously, my views, uh, my thoughts shift to the, the song White Rabbit immediately. Um, but let's, let's introduce Roger Essig. Now, Roger has... He's essentially an artist who specialises in um, visual representations of... Uh, psychological and psychedelic states. So he's also interested in the science of, of psychedelics too. So we, we could talk about that in the question time. But um, Roger has been a kind of authority on um, psychedelic or responsible 
responsible psychedelic um, <laughs> drug use since 1999 and since 2014 he's been showing his visualizations um visual artworks that have have been based on representing these kinds of experiences in ways that many people can see what is essentially quite a subjective experience and so his work has appeared at white night rainbow serpent festival pause fest and many other parties and he's also given talks about the interplay of virtual reality with psychedelics and lucid dreaming as well and um, he's spoken at um, Melbourne's Media Lab and also at Darwin Film Festival. Now Roger has brought along his um, 3D, no it's not 3D it's um, it's a VR kind of um, psychedelic experience and if you're interested um, it goes for only about Two, minute 30. Yeah, a minute and a half, 90 seconds. And we have all had a go, and it's tremendous. It's it's wondrous. And it is based on an actual experience that Roger had. Um, but tonight he's going to be talking about the, the text of Alice in Wonderland and what that might have to do with psychedelic experiences. So over to you, Roger. Thanks, Mel. A uh, bit of housekeeping first, like literal housekeeping. I have to move these glasses out of the way so I can actually see the screen. <laughs> I'll have my non-psychedelic. I'll have my glass because I'm done talking now for a little bit. <laughs> Is that yours? Yeah. All right. So, as you can see, these are a few photos of me. Um, yeah, like in Melbourne, actually, uh, at a, various parties, and Alice in Wonderland kept cropping up. Um, the top left is an Alice in Wonderland party, like the theme party. I'm not sure who I am. I'm, I, I'm meant to go as a pirate, but I ended up looking like Cher, because <laughs> I shadow one. But that's the, uh, the, um, the march here there, of course. There's me as the Mad Hatter at a chocolate-themed Alice in Wonderland party with a bit of, bit of chocolate on my nose. And at another party, I, this is what I, I usually do. I'll bring an art panel and I'll get people to join in and and this formed, it was like a caterpillar. So actually, as I was painting it, it turned into the, the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. So yeah, it seems, yeah, and if you think about the book, how, f how famous it is, and it, it may be due partly because um, end of copyright laws, you know, it, it could be reinterpreted or, you know, remade in various films and stuff like that. But the, the fact that it's so popular may be tied into like the mythical journey that uh, Alice went on, because you see other really famous books or stories. Classic one is, you know, um, Harry Potter, how that just blew up, you know. I think, is she more uh, rich, richer than the Queen now? I think the, the author, I'm not sure. J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, that's what I heard, but I'm <laughs> not sure. Uh, but these stories seem to resonate so deeply, and I, I think that it is like a hero's journey that she went on. There is that tunnel sequence at the beginning, and. Uh, you know, ancient tribes people, they would uh, put their children or, you know, their adolescents into caves to let them confront their own demons and fears. So it's kind of like she's gone on this journey. Now, I don't know if uh, Lewis Carroll intended this, but it may be a fact that uh, this story sort of stood the test of time is because it sort of went that way and, yeah, people can relate to these hero journeys. So what's next? All right. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of theories about, and a lot of them have been disproved. So getting me here to talk about his potential use of psychedelics like Lewis Carroll or any sort of drug, 
all the, all the research I did came up, no, it's been sort of refuted. He didn't really, there's no indication that he had opium for his medication, although this could have, he could have had, you know, um, definitely. Because uh, he did have migraines. headaches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and some of the side effects, I mean, these were given to kids, as you can see, it says laudanum for baby too. So, they were, you know, people were giving like doses to, to children and a lot of people were like mothers that have to work. So some of them would actually dose their baby up and let them sleep all day, you know, sleep. Um, and so when they came back, they you know, just a yeah, sleepy baby, I guess. Unfortunately, it didn't always work out too well because, you know, overdoses and stuff like that. So, so, um, so yes, there is side effects uh, with, although a lot of this was mixed with alcohol, so some say that the percentage wasn't enough to cause hallucinations and stuff like that. And by itself, opium isn't known as a psychedelic, really. Uh, but having said that, there, I think it can be. You can access parts of your mind through just uh, stressful situations that chemicals do to your body. Uh, but it's not known as a psychedelic. Uh, what's next? So yeah, in researching this, uh, I was looking for evidence of any indication that there was some, at least maybe uh, Lewis was inspired or knew about opium, which he definitely did. Uh, he was a really famous photographer, I guess you could call him, or a really prolific photographer, and he took a, a lot of photos of his uh, peers as well, like other book writers, and there was a, a photo of uh, an author, and his wife had actually overdosed on opium, on laudanum, I think it was pronounced. So he definitely knew of people that, you know, uh, indulged in that sort of thing, because she definitely indulged in overdose and stuff like that. So, and also there was a, I'll get on to, there's a, a further ahead of the slide uh, about the author, uh, Thomas De Quincey, who wrote Confessions of an Opium Eater, and uh, English Opium Eater. So I'll talk about that a bit later, but this was really interesting. This was his original artwork that he gave to Alice Little, the, uh, the girl. Uh, the book that he hand wrote and drew pictures of. And this was, he called it a hooker, as you can see down there. Uh, but it, it wasn't really a hooker, it was more of an opium pipe. And you can see this incredible artwork by, I think it was a wood carving actually, by Gustave Doré, who's one of the most prolific, I've, I've just sort of saw his artworks recently and he's done like, like thousands of incredible artworks this detail, so I recommend people look him up if they don't know him already. So, yeah, the similarities are very striking, I find. Like, pretty much the same length, you know? And then you can see in the background, I think that was from San Francisco, actually, the, the top image. Uh, but again, you can see the opium pipe there, the length of that. So, what's next? Okay, and, and you spoke of this, the, uh, the headaches uh, that Carol um, supposedly had. And yeah, there was research done where, like a paper written about how he may have complained about these ocular migraines after the book had been written, but it says in one of the, it says it's the second time it happened, but he didn't mention the first in any, in any of his diaries. So there, there is, yeah, and it's up to de for debate if he had any of these specific ocular migraines. But yeah, in looking at this, I, I found it really interesting. It looks like a cat smiling. Uh, if you, you know, tilt your head sideways at least. Uh, so what does it say? 
and I wish you wouldn't keep appearing and vanishing so suddenly. You make one quite giddy. So this is Alice. All right, said the cat, and this time it vanished quite slowly, beginning with the end of the tail and ending with the grin, which, reminded, which remained some time after the rest of it had gone. Well, I've often, often seen a cat without a grin, thought Alice, but a grin without a cat? <laughs> it's the most curious thing I have ever saw in my life. Uh, that's, yeah. So, what else? Oh, yeah, so in another part of the book, she wrote, uh, Alice, uh, he wrote, when she noticed a curious appearance in the air, it puzzled her very much at first, but after watching it a minute or two, she made it out to be a grin. And she said to herself, it's a Cheshire cat. So in researching this, I, the, the images of this ocular migraine, they do last for several minutes, and they progressively get more vibrant. So th that sort of falls into um, similar time frame as well. And you can see in the top right uh, the body distortions that that person's going through, the stretching of the legs and stuff like that. And again, it's always with these sort of curves. Um, is there anything else to add to that? I don't think so. But in a way, I'll, I will, I'll be talking about the appearance of the Cheshire cat again and how it relates to psychedelics, which could be an opium-based vision. Not that, and this is my claim that Lewis May never had had the experience, but he read authors that did, and he's known fan of, you know, as I said before, Thomas De Quincey, who wrote quite detailed about his experiences. And here, here it is, um, Thomas De Quincey, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. So this is the, his description. I thus gave the reader some slight abstraction of my oriental dreams which always filled me with such amazement at the monstrous scenery that that horror seemed absorbed for a while in sheer astonishment. Sooner or later came a reflux of feeling that swallowed up the astonishment and left me not so much in terror as in hatred and, ab and abomination of what I saw. Over every form and threat and punishment and dim slightness incarceration brooded a sense of eternity and infinity that drove me into oppression as of madness. Into these dreams only it was, with one or two slight exceptions, that any circumstance of physical horror entered. All but, all before had been moral and spiritual terrors, but here the main agents were ugly birds or snakes or crocodiles, especially the last. The cursed crocodile became to me the object of more horror than almost all the rest. I was compelled to live with him and, as was always the case, almost in my dreams, for centuries. Yeah, so it's like uh, his, his experience seemed like, it felt like centuries, obviously. So, And yeah, that's a, a common theme with psychedelic uses as well. I wasn't aware that opium gave that similar effect or that people had visions, so that's it's quite interesting. I escaped sometimes and found myself in the Chinese houses with cane tables. All the feet of the tables and sofas soon became instinct with life. The abominable head of the, the crocodile and his leering eyes looked out at me, multiplied into thousands, into a thousand repetitions, and I stood loathing and fascinated. And uh, in going through, I, you know, this uh, this is kind of a coincidence, maybe, or this is uh, the the second, well, the original artwork by uh, what was the. Uh, I forget the... Um... Is it Tenniel? Yeah, that's Tenniel. the one. So, Which would have been overseen, I think, 
by Lewis Carroll. Um, he may have... I'm not too sure about that. But... Yeah, he got very upset. Oh, really? The first edition was printed because oh. the, the quality of the images were not up to scratch. Okay. Oh, yeah, so he's very... Yeah, um, fastidious with I don't know yeah. if that <laughs> with yeah even the book quality like the paper that was used and all that so he was very uh, careful with his, the final product so this is the Jabberwocky yes yeah. that's the Jabberwocky so I found the uh, uh, this print of the Thomas de Quincey book and the similarities were quite striking mm. um, and it's a common or well, there's the thing of chasing the dragon with uh, opium which I always thought was a hallucination like as a kid when I heard about that or a young teenager uh, but I since learned it's more about chasing the smoke. It's, but then again, I think there is a dragon-esque aspect to this. Like people can see visions, and um, and I've definitely seen dragon type of entities on a substance called dimethyltryptamine, which is a it's a common theme to see these sort of predatory animals, and it and it may have something to do with uh, which I'll talk about in a, depending on the next slide. I always forget what it is. Ah, oh, yes, it is the one I want. <laughs> so I've just heard recently, I've just found out recently about snakeskin uh, detection, what humans can do and how we've evolved to be able to notice snakeskin, like the diamond pattern amongst uh, foliage, or even if like only a small percentage of the snakes shown, uh, it, we've co-evolved with snakes, you know, when we used to live in trees. And I, I imagine the snakes were much bigger and we were much smaller, if you know what I mean. So it, it may be, I mean, this is just a hypothesis. Uh, so, but yeah, there's been a lot of papers talked about this and they've done tests. Um, I won't go into the detail of the tests because I've only read them once through and I can't really remember. Uh, but yeah, they've used, they've tested on monkeys as well. They've never experienced snakes before and they, they did see a, a notice um, reaction, I guess you could say. And I myself had an experience, and it, in fact, one of the first people to write about this, uh, Lynn A. Is Isbell, yeah, she, why she researched this was she had an experience of being out and all of a sudden she realised she was jumping backwards from a snake and she didn't even know it was there. Uh, that happened to me like eight months ago, a tiger snake at a friend's property. Uh, I was walking down the back of the bush with two mates behind me and all of a sudden I was in the air, pointing, yelling out snake. and. And the snake and I jumped backwards at the same time. It was, and yeah, I didn't even realise it was happening until you know after it happened in a way. So, why I'm talking about this is my theory is or hypothesis is on psychedelics or even opium, um, when you're drowsy and half asleep or whatever like that. Uh, there's a hypogogia, I think it's pronunciation, hypogogia, the imagery that pops up as you're either falling asleep naturally or on psychedelics or opium. Uh, there may be something that triggers the mind. There may be something that there, there might be like a, a diamond shape or something that's similar to snakeskin patterns that it it triggers the mind and then a full form appears. Like the imagination takes over and goes, "Hey, look out! There, there's a snake there." And it fills in the details. So I'm not too sure about that. I haven't really heard about uh, people talking about that, but I just sort of put two and two together when um, hearing people talk about it. So. Ooh. Yeah. So these are your works? No, the, the one on the right is by Alex Gray. Uh -huh. um, it's called Ayahuasca Visitation. And again, so all this relates back to Lewis Carroll in a bit of a tenuous sort of uh, line, I guess you could say. He read Thomas de Quincey who talked about these apparitions appearing, just like the Cheshire Cat. So it may have given him some idea. 
you know, he, he might not even have been aware of it as he was writing, but you know, it, he may have gone, oh yeah, apparitions appear to people that want opium. So that's my, yeah, my joining of the ideas. So the image on the left there is of um, what I saw as I was smoking this substance, uh, which was extracted from the acacia tree. Uh, so it's called dimethyltryptamine. This was uh, in 1999, so 20 years ago now, pretty much. Uh, and I had no idea what was going to happen. So as I was smoking it, this, as I was, literally as I was smoking the substance, which is highly illegal, but I did it, I'm just going to lie and say I did it in a place where it was legal, so. <laughs> um, it's not like this is being live broadcast streams, no. or anything. Uh, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, this very wrathful sort of uh, creature came up and you can see these, there is diamond shapes there. It was very reptilian and it's a common theme. Uh, and I've actually talked, well, communicated with Rick Strassman, a doctor in America, who in 1995 was able to do the first, or a bit before it, um, was able to do the first clinical trials of uh, dimethyltryptamine on human subjects. Um, and the first, it was the first to study on psychedelics since the big drug, drug war ban, I guess, of the, I'm not too sure what it was, but probably late or early 70s, I think. Uh, it took him two years to get approval, I think, or th nearly two and a half years. Uh, so I communicated with him, and he's actually used my artwork on some of his online articles, and so that's been fun. And th so this is one of the first um, artworks that, because I, I looked online, it's like, oh, there must be other people that experience similar things, oh, you know, using computer graphics to really get the detail, which I could never hand paint kind of thing. Uh, and so I made it and put it online and it went viral. And around the same time, Alex Gray did his version, which is called Ayahuasca Visitation. And we, so we hadn't seen it. We, it was like within a few, like a, a couple of months of each other. And you can notice the, the top, how there's that similarity in that uh, oval shape up near the third eye, I guess you could call it. Um, his is more animal, I mean, mine is more animal and his is more humanoid. But uh, yeah, it's some interesting, uh, Coincidences there, I think, and you can see the diamond shapes on the on the right hand side there. And here's a couple of other artworks. Um, uh, the one on the left is by Luke Brown, and I think it's called I can't remember the name. Sorry, Luke, if you ever watch this, but it's something about feline. So it is a cat type being that he saw on DMT, I, I assume. Uh, and then the one on the right, it's very snake-like patterns, uh, again, diamond shapes. And that was by uh, a guy who calls himself Titan Droid. Uh, so yeah, hmm, maybe Lewis uh, yeah, was inspired by what he read in Thomas's work. So I'm not sure, but yeah, that's my talk. Thank you. Wow. Do you know, it, it strikes me that both Nick and Roger have presented imagery that has attempted to convey somehow what the experience, what a psychological experience is like for the person. Um, so Nick, when you were looking at Roger's pictures just now, um, did it strike you that this reflects anything to do with neuroscience? So, for instance, the symmetry is one thing that strikes me about those images. Yeah, I think it has to at some stage, at some point, and I think we, you know, we're... Uh uh, we, we, we're pattern seekers, you know, our brains are all about finding patterns and we find patterns of things that are meaningful and our brains are probably pre-tuned in some way to identify things that matter to us and if you looked at the rightmost article that, um, that uh, Roger showed, 
Ed pointed out, uh, you know, snakes and, and threatening people uh, are sort of two very prepared objects of concern. And so it's not surprising that we would see things which sort of resonate that with that in some way. So, I mean, how could it not be to do with psychology and neuroscience? It's about experience. Mm. Uh, it, it has to at some level. So I think uh, the ideas are just fascinating. I think that something that we've all tried to grapple with tonight is the extent to which Lewis Carroll or Charles Dodgson um, reflected his own experiences in the work. So you've looked at the migraine issue and, uh, Steph, you've looked at the, the maths issue and the kind of debates that were happening academically at the time. And, Roger, you've looked at uh, the background and the things that he might have been reading in the other texts. And when in my intro, I was also looking at all sorts of other things. To what extent do you think we can see the interpretations of Alice as being something that he intended? And to what extent are we reading into it ourselves? Well, I think the mathematics is definitely there. Yeah. Um, his, it, when he wrote about other things, what I've found out while I've been researching this, most of his other work that he wrote was really rather dull. Some of the other books that are in this, this lovely book that uh, my mother was given when I was born, um, um, are really dull that he wrote for children. It was when he was riled and angry and had something to say about the mathematics and the changes that were going against his classically trained mind um, and, and what he saw as um, the, the downfall of Euclidean geometry that he came up with these wonderful characters. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Roger, a lot of your work is about subjectivity. Do you think that um, it's his subjectivity that we're reading when we read Alice? Hmm. Uh, definitely it's looking at... Uh, definitely the mass comes into play, so there's definitely the objectivity of that. Uh, so, yeah, back to, you know, like this hero's journey myth mythological... I mean, the way, the way I understand it is he made up the story as it went, you know, so he was kind of... Um, you know, he just put this girl in a situation and, you know, just included a rabbit going down a rabbit hole. And now he had to invent a whole pathway um, of what happens to her down there. So I think in terms of that, I think he just let his imagination run wild and mm. it's just resonated. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of the mathematical um, stories and the characters in were added prior, after. Yeah, oh, yeah. to after... So the, yeah. the story he initially told to Alice Little and the story that he gave to her. So the Mad Hatter's tea party, um, uh, some of the other things that happened. I only mentioned some of the mathematics as well. There's a whole bunch oh, of others. So if you want to come and have a chat afterwards, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know about the continuity principle and some of the inverse jokes that are in there as well. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, but I didn't want to overwhelm the audience. <laughs> Um, but they were added afterwards. So the story that he told on the banks of the Isis to Alice Little and the mm. book that he presented with his own illustrations didn't have all of the, the rest of these things. And maybe the book would not have been, and that's some of the commentary, wouldn't have been, um, wouldn't have stood the test of time if it hadn't have had these extra scenes in there that he added. Yeah. Nick, do you think that we're looking at one dude's vision or is it something that we are creating by reading it as well? Well, it has to always be both, but I know it's unfashionable to say that you know, authors' intentions matter, but I think you know, they obviously do. And, but, and you don't need to choose between these ideas, really. I think you, know, you can say, uh, in terms of the, the, the Tea Party, you know, it, it illustrates a mathematical principle. You know, the plane, the things are rotating around it in two dimensions. That's a mathematical idea that reflects his, his work. Um, you know, the fact that he's chosen characters who might represent people he comes across in his daily life, that's deliberate. 
the fact that he's got a mad hatter and hatters may be mad, you know, the fact of the general, this general weirdness uh, which uh, permeates all of it, which might reveal a person who's interested in alternative experiences. And I had another slide I cut, thankfully, uh, which is about, he, had, he, he was actually really interested in liminal experiences. He was a psychologist. He cared about trans states where you saw he thought fairies. You know, that's built into it as well, and that sort of comes through in his interest in this of psychedelic side of things, and maybe has a certain added reality, especially with the stretched human beings, with his personal experience of uh, uh, migraine auras. Uh, you know, that's all in there. Uh, mm. to be found. Now, of course, you can also impose your own subjectivity there. Not every interpretation is equally plausible, but I think there's a, what's great about the book, there's so many layers. That's right. It's interesting that you bring up the liminal states, because when you're talking about the, the hypnagogic state, um, a lot of other writers, for instance, Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, have reported that they find um, some of their most creative visions coming when they're falling asleep or when they're just waking up. I know that I sometimes feel like some of my most exciting ideas come in those states where I, I'm not really thinking uh, strongly about these things. Um, so also the, the Edgar Allan Poe um, poem, all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Um, all right. <laughs> Who would like to ask some questions? Oh, down the front we have, uh, we've got a roving microphone that's going to come, so please put your hand up. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you've kind of touching on the area that I was going to direct my question about, and maybe to Roger and also to Nick, uh, because at the beginning, Mel, you mentioned that Roger would be referring to lucid dreaming. Well, and yes. He you, didn't yeah. actually get quite to it, but you touched on it just there a moment ago. So I'd like to hear what Roger had to say mm -hmm. about lucid dreaming and whether it has any connection with Carol's writing. And I'd also like to hear from Nick about the, the, the same, same matter. Right. Uh, yeah, um, I've spoken about lucid dreaming uh, a lot, uh, I guess, with my artworks and um, publicly, and even just anyone that will listen. Can you um, explain what lucid dreaming is, if someone if sure, someone doesn't know? Sure. And this isn't in any way related to Alice in Wonderland. Uh, you know, I didn't have a connection there at all. It's just, yeah, that was just my intro that I talk about lucid dreaming. So, but yeah. Uh, so you can train yourself. It's like a muscle. Um, there's various ways to do it. Um, it's the ability to realise that you're dreaming while you're asleep. So you actually have the realization, oh, I'm in my bed sleeping right now. But it, and to test it, you actually pinch yourself and it hurts. So it's more real than real in a way. Um, and it can last a few seconds. If you get too excited, it can end. So there's ways to control yourself. Uh, I've worked out techniques where uh, I build in my short-term memory. So I'll glance at an object for two seconds this is in the dream, and glance at another object and do it until it, I build in a short-term memory of the environment and then it just locks in. Um, yeah, so it's fascinating. And then you can control your dream? To a to a, it's like you have a, an, a higher ego, or I'm not too sure of the technical terms. Uh, you can't just do anything you want. Okay. There's a, something that intervenes if you... Try. Like, well, you can't switch on a light, apparently, like I've tried, like you can't change light condition, it's like we don't have the processing power in a dream state to open a curtain and it'd be, like, if you try to open a curtain, there'll be something shut behind it, like your mind will protect wow. you from a, a change in light, huh. which is interesting. What's, um, your, what's your view on this, Nick? I think it's fascinating. I think, you know, the division of labour here is that Roger has the experiences and I sort of write boring papers about them. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> you can be trained. <laughs> 
look, uh, it's obviously it's obviously real and it's fascinating. And at some level, I mean, this is again getting to the book. I, I'm afraid I know nothing about lucid dreams as an area of study. I'm sorry, but you know, it's sort of a hyper lucid dream itself. It's a book about a dream. Um, it's all very dreamy. Uh, it's got all the elements that people like Sigmund Freud said dreams have. You know, things turn into other things without anyone really batting an eyelid. Um, things don't follow any kind of logical sequence. Weird things happen and, and, and we just have indifference towards them. And it's all been deliberately constructed by someone who's an author. So it's not dreaming strictly, but it's definitely dreamy. Mm. Do we have other questions? Um, I guess it was just a, a comment to extend on what both of you were saying. Um, I recently attended uh, a, a seminar about consciousness and uh, in that they were talking about a state that um, that creative people and, and in in the past and, and from memory it was kind of contemporary to this person we're talking about where they would um, go to sleep holding a rock and then when the rock yeah. dropped they would wake so that they were there in that kind of creative moment when you've sort of half in sleep and and half awake so it's not quite like lucid dreaming but it's you know that kind of twilight state almost that you get into and that they would purposely do that to, to aid their creativity and to, to think differently. It can go both ways. I mean, there's other stories. One story about the popular belief of being abducted by aliens is that people are mistaking a state like that where they're actually, their bodies are paralyzed in yeah. sleep paralysis uh, with the idea of someone being abducted. So I, I'm not sure I'm going to play that game. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Does anyone have perhaps any scientific or mathematical questions? No, Harry was going to say why um, maths is in, taught in an art subject. I did read about it, but I've forgotten. He will eloquently tell us all. Well, it's because um, uh, those of you who have studied maths at school, you've learned how to count and uh, how to uh, enumerate things. But that's not why people study maths, really. It's really about the foundations of logic. Uh, so uh, the study of mathematics is really about uh, uh, the principles that you need to establish uh, fact uh, and to uh, know when something is really true. And that's the foundation of modern uh, computing and uh, uh, computer algorithms and uh, decision-making uh, processes in computers. And in the middle of uh, the Bodleian Library in Oxford, uh, the corners of the Bodleian Library are divided up uh, into the original schools, schools of philosophy, schools of logic, schools of mathematics, and schools of uh, geometry. And uh, it really dates back to the 13th century. Amazing. It reminds me of how the old-fashioned term for science is natural philosophy. Mm -hmm and how maybe there isn't that much difference between um, philosophy and, and other forms of inquiry. Oh, well, mathematics is really just a language that we place on the world to understand it. And we set our own kind of schema or conceptual schema with numbers and that's just how we understand it. But if we decided, like when Alice is in the hallway and she does her addition, her multiplication wrong, it's not wrong, she's just using different bases. We have base 10, those multiplications are right, they're just in a different base. And if we'd not had maybe 10 fingers and had eight, like the Simpsons, mm. we would have used different bases and everything in our mathematics would be completely different today. Haven't different um, civilizations had different bases, like the Babylonians mm -hmm. or something? Oh, I'm hearing some authority from the, <laughs> from 
the audience here. Do we have another question? So I'm, I'm in two worlds because I'm a creative, but my grandfather was a mathematician and he also studied at Oxford University. My husband is a CFO. Mm -hmm. now, That's a chief financial officer for yeah. anyone in the audience. <laughs> Sorry. That didn't know. Sorry. Um, but it's interesting because knowing mathematic people that study mathematics, <laughs> now, I don't, and my daughter's a scientist as well, they are very hard to communicate. So they get frustrated sometimes to be emotional. So when I read um, the works of Alice, sometimes I think that he uses the characters to show emotion where he's, because he's such a shy personality. And because they're so logical, they get frustrated because they can't feel what they want to say and they want it to be logical. Well, and I know that with my own husband. So I don't know what I just well, well, what I do have you think. A honours degree in theoretical physics. My family is sitting in the back row there and they would say that I'm quite emotional <laughs> and that I'm pretty good at showing it. So, um, but I think that um, um, Lewis Carroll uses his characters, like I said before, as, as a way for him to satirise and to, uh, to show his... Um, dismay and his frustrations at, at the changes that are happening um, and he does it in a way that that is entertaining and that the people that were reading it that were in on the joke as I said um, would have really enjoyed it and had a bit of a laugh knowing that the rest of us didn't really know what what was going on and they just thought it was a mad tea party that time was missing all oh, that strange times a person or so so the, a pig turned into a a baby turned into a pig well that's the continuity principle sigmund freud might have different ideas well, yes but he had a way of putting it in layman's terms so everyone has had fun with what he wrote and yep. that's the same with double it when he used words and changed words. I yeah, love Dublin, yeah, so it's yeah. kind of really fun, you know, mm -hmm. and I um, appreciate, I loved your talk, by oh, the way. thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have to um, thank Harry for his help with my talk and Joe, who's up the back there, for the help with the slides as well. And just on what you said, uh, like when he was on the boat uh, narrating this story to Alice uh, Little, uh, I think there was uh, one of his mates or one of his mathematical friends so he was telling the story to him too. I think mm. that's what I read somewhere mm. as well. So there was that. Yeah. We have time for maybe one more question. If anyone has a burning question. I can't quite see with the lights on me. <laughs> no. Um, well, I'd love to thank our three panellists for their very expert comments, and I hope that you've found um, a new way to interpret Alice uh, after this panel. Please join me in thanking Nick, Steph and Roger. Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.